as I had the past couple of Sundays to uh, take a time away and just uh, spend some time worshiping in our community with a couple of other uh, uh, congregations. It was just a really good time to kind of get a perspective going into the, the new year. And um, I will say one thing, I do enjoy being back at Christ Community. <laughs> I enjoy being with other brothers and sisters in the Lord and some really special times of worship in those places that I, I really appreciated. Went to churches that I never experienced their worship before or, or get to know them, and it was an encouragement to see what God is doing in our greater community, but I'm so glad to be again with our family here worshiping together. Uh, and as I thought about going to this new year, uh, today, as we look at God's Word, and the next couple of weeks going into Missions Month, as we look towards this new year, I have some thoughts I'd like to share about what I hope we will look in 2013 for, what we will look for in 2013, how we will consider our lives, both individually, families, and as a church family, looking into this new year. What are we expecting? Uh, or maybe what aren't we expecting and how we'll look at that. So today, that's what we're focusing on <clears throat> as one of those thoughts. And uh, the uh, message is entitled, Our Year of Jubilee. And it's coming from an Old Testament passage that uh, I'm not sure if you know, I can even remember ever preaching from the book of Leviticus in any recent years. And so this might be actually a first for me at Christ Community. So we're looking at a passage uh, in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 25, and uh, also part of the text for the chapter is there in your uh, worship bulletin. Not all of the chapter is there, which covers much more about this uh, year of Jubilee, but um, I wanted to give you a primary text, and then we'll be having other texts. You can jot down notes and so forth as to those supplemental and other points uh, as we go through uh, our time in the Word today. Uh, as a background, before we read the passage, understanding <clears throat> coming into Leviticus, you have God's people who, uh, if you go back, of course, all the way, um, not necessarily to creation, but back, of course, knowing maybe, as you might know something about the Old Testament scriptures and the, the journey and the story of God's people, they were in Egypt, they were in slavery, uh, and they were captive. And of course, it was a tremendous difficulty for them as God's people, but then God came and through Moses and he led them out of that bondage led them out, the Exodus, <clears throat> as you read there in the Old Testament, and you see the whole story of their, of their journey. But of course, in, of, in their disobedience, they wandered for 40 years in that wandering before God finally brought them into the promised land. Though Moses didn't enter, Joshua led God's people into the promised land, and they began to receive the blessings that God had promised them as a people. And as they set up their homes and homesteads and, and, and all of the tribes of Israel, they settled into different regions, and God began providing them more clarity and structure for both their social uh, understanding of how they were to relate to one another and tribes and, and, uh, and understand how to move forward in a relationship not only with each other, but also how they were to relate and to worship the one true God that led them and gave them that promises. And so Leviticus is part of that structure being given more detail. God continued to unfold his revelation to them as to how they were to understand their relationship with him in this place now that he had promised them, the blessings of uh, their new land. And so Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1, thir 1 through 13, God's word says this. And the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields. For six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you. For yourself, your manservant and maidservant and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. 
It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. Let's pray. Father, may your words be clear not only to our minds first, but also to our souls. I pray that your word, as your spirit has given it, would strike every heart, including my own, as we spend time considering your grace and your truth. May we understand what it means to celebrate your grace this year of Jubilee. May we take it to heart and anticipate that in this coming year, we will have as much expectation as your people did in this year of Jubilee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if I were to ask each one of you individually, I had the opportunity to do so today, what is 2013 going to be like for you? Are you anticipating 2013 to be a fantastic year? You can't wait to see what God is going to do in 2013. For you, your family, your relationships, your church, your community, your nation, your world that God has given you, you are just excited with full heart, ready to receive, knowing it's going to be an amazing year in 2013. Some of you might actually feel that way. Those of you that are by nature optimists, that have just that sense that regardless of what happened in 2012, this is going to be a fantastic opportunity to see what God will do. Maybe some of you are maybe a little bit more, as some might call, realists. You look forward to the new year, new beginnings, kind of 2012 is now behind you. Maybe there was ups and downs, maybe more struggles than you had thought would be in the previous year. And you look forward to, but with caution, with realism, knowing that it's not going to be one huge mountain peak top the whole time as you ride through the year. Maybe that's how many of you view the anticipated upcoming 2013. But then maybe there's some who are more like Winnie the Pooh and the donkey. You know, Eeyore. Oh, oh. 2013, another year. You know, you even dread having to buy a new calendar because you got to actually start into a whole other. And in fact, maybe some of you made New Year's resolutions already and you've already broken them. Maybe some of you said, you know, I'm not even going to do New Year's resolutions because I know I'm going to break them. And so you just kind of slid into 2013, and it's just kind of bled from 2012 over into 2013. There's not really been any demarcation or change at all from what you were experiencing about three or four weeks ago before Christmas and kind of now. It's just kind of all one continuous just existence. Maybe that's how some of you feel. I don't know. I'm sure each one of us have a little bit of each of those somewhere in there, and we all struggle in different ways. But what I'd like to do in the the message today and the next couple of weeks is just look out this year, but with hopefully thoughts from God's perspective. Not just how we feel about this coming year, but how does the Lord himself tell us he feels about this coming year for us, his people? And how we need to recognize what he says and take it to heart and to embrace it and to apply it so that our year, hopefully, it's much more what the Lord wants for us rather than what we think it's going to be like. 
Because if we anticipate what 2013 will be for ourselves and just how we view it, it's likely we will have all those ups and downs and mixed responses. But if we view it as God views it, if we consider this year ahead of each one of us as God says it is and how he shows us from his word what he has already shown us about this coming year, maybe not specifically for 2013, but our abiding in him this coming year, we are going to be blessed. This passage in Leviticus, <clears throat> as I mentioned, uh, takes a snapshot of the life of the church. The church being in the Old Testament, God's people. It's a snapshot of their life and their existence as God's people. And so we take and we observe as we're going to do today in this passage, and then we carry it forward to how does this apply? What does this mean for us as God's church today, as his children, as his people? And so we look, first of all, we must ask the question, what was the year of Jubilee? Maybe some of you are more of an Old Testament bent in your study of the scriptures, and you really understand this particular perspective, this snapshot of the life of Israel. Uh, I had done some study in, in the past, but this week, even studying this, under, uh, this whole concept of the year of Jubilee, learned so much more. Um, and I definitely thank Dr. Sam Larson for giving me some insights on this particular study. Uh, if you want to ask a lot more about the year of Jubilee beyond what I share with you, I encourage you to speak with Sam Larson uh, anytime. Uh, tremendous resource. But the year of Jubilee is a very unique in fact, it's only mentioned in Leviticus in two different chapters, in once in Numbers, in chapter 36. It's not mentioned that much, only briefly the New Testament by Christ, which we'll look at. And so there's just not a whole lot about this particular concept. In fact, there's not a lot of extra biblical material, certainly not biblical material, that describes Israel's experiencing the year of Jubilee. Some have even doubted that they actually participated and did this particular celebration because we don't have a whole lot of material about the regular observance of every 50th year being in the land. And yet it's here. And it gives us much more than just a particular snapshot of Israel. It gives us more into an insight of God's heart for his people and what he wanted for them. So what was the year of Jubilee? Well, first we must understand it in the first seven verses of chapter 25, which are really not just speaking of at all about the year of Jubilee, but about a whole nother celebration, which we do have more understanding of. It's called the year of the Sabbath, or the Sabbath year, which was not one year every 50 years, like the Jubilee year, it was in the regular practice of Israel, one out of every seven years that they practiced. You see, the year of Jubilee must be understood in light of the Sabbath year, one out of every seven. The year of the Sabbath was, as I said, one in every seven, set aside with certain requirements by Yahweh for his people, whereas the year of Jubilee was seven sevens seven Sabbath years, and finally came the 50th year. And so, in one sense, the year of Jubilee was a Sabbath's Sabbath, you see. It was kind of exclamation point every 50 years to the Sabbath year, which was every seven years. Why? Why did God choose to place this exclamation point after every seven sevenths, seven Sabbaths years. Well, hopefully we'll understand as we go through and understand this year of Jubilee as it is revealed to us in Leviticus 25. As we look at first or secondly, the practice and the purposes. We're not going to look at every practice of this year of Jubilee. It's way too much in detail, but we are going to look at some highlight, particularly three different practices that were the main practices of this celebration, and what were the purposes in it from God's perspective? Did he just say, I want you to do this, this, and this, and there's not really anything tied behind it? Not at all. He had purposes for his people to receive and 
for them to grow spiritually from. One overarching purpose, as we look at this whole concept of the year of Jubilee, overarching would be that the year itself, the year of Jubilee, would be the very impetus or catalyst to move the heart of God's people so that they would be completely His. That they would not only every seven years set aside that focus, but every seven-seventh years, they would spend extra exclamation point, emphasis, opportunity to focus their heart and mind to give themselves to Him because they are His people. God wanted His people to grow intensively in their heart and extensively in their missional life and in their impact and influence upon all those within their community and those outside even their own people. He desired for them to understand that more greatly. Giving a priority, you see, overarching purpose for this year of Jubilee was to give God a priority in their life, to make Him their all in all, to make Him holistically every aspect of their life was being touched. And if not, they would take that time to realign, as they did every seven years, but if they happened to miss it in the past 49, to continue and to realign every aspect of what they did with Yahweh, with worshiping Him, with making Him their complete focus, and making Him much about who and how they lived their life. Now, during the year of Jubilee, there were several things which God commanded these, uh, God, His people, the Israelites, to follow, and they are directly connected to spiritual truths, to spiritual purposes that God had for them. So let's, like I said, look at three particular practices and then understand their purposes and how they connect even to us. First, there was a practice that God told His people in, as they were there in the land at this point, to take a two-year refrain from labor in harvest. A two-year refrain from labor in harvest, which they, of course, in a very agrarian society, would spend a lot of focus and energy upon, unlike today, where much of our world is not necessarily agrarian, and we, all the millions and billions, uh, millions, millions and millions that live in cities and don't, we don't have the same mindset, they certainly understood much of their world in light of that relationship of God and the world that He had created for them. And so, God said He wanted them to take this two-year refrain from labor and harvest. Now, the relationship between God and the Israelites was, of course, hugely interpreted through, as I said, that agrarian understanding, where the sun, the rain, drought, everything was very much a part of your relationship and worship of God. You know, we had rain the past few days. We've had some overcast. It's been kind of misty, maybe some fog. And you just kind of get in your car, go to work, and come home. I mean, you don't, it doesn't really relate to you thinking about maybe we haven't had rain I happened to go online, I thought, well, I want to look and see how Georgia's doing in the drought index. So I went online, looked this past week at the drought index for Georgia, not realizing that it's not good right now for even Georgia in major parts of our state regarding the drought. Now, if I were more a farmer in Georgia, I probably would be a lot more in tune. But unless I happen to go Google it and look at it, it doesn't affect my day-to-day -day experience at all, really much. Unless I get a lot of rain and I can't have an outside barbecue. I mean, really, that's very different than the Israelite mindset. Rain, drought, sun, wind, all the elements of the outside were a very big part of their understanding of God's provision, His blessing, His relationship with them. And so, today, we have a very different mindset. If you look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 25, the 50th year, it says, shall be that jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee. It is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. Now remember, I said the Sabbath was every seven years. Okay? Every seven. And God would provide 
as he told his people, a bumper crop in the sixth year so that they would be able to be provided for in the seventh year. Though they're able to still take what is there from naturally growing, not sowing and reaping the harvest like they would do in a normal year, and yet they're still able to gather. And so he would provide even an extra bumper crop in the sixth year so they could live off of that extra plus any extras that may be there uh, in the seventh year. So they wouldn't be wanting in the seventh year. They could take that time to let the land rest for the seventh year. <clears throat> However, in the year of Jubilee, God would provide a double, again, exclamation point, bumper crop so that they would not only not harvest in the 49th year, but also not harvest in the 50th year. So in the 48th year, he would give them a huge crop. So for two years, they would be able to rest the land and enjoy the blessings and provision that God had given them for that period of time. And so God knew that he needed to provide for them, and he did so even as he gave this structure for them. The year of Jubilee, God would provide this crop in year 48, and they would then allow the land to rest for 49 and 50. But here's the question. Did God's people just upon this particular plan that God gave them expect for a couple of years? We're just going to enjoy, take some naps and sit back and just enjoy life. Not going to do much because, you know, that has taken a lot of our time. So I'm looking forward to Jubilee. I'm looking forward to the Sabbath year. I just get a chance to kick back, put my shoes up and chill out for a whole two-year period. No, not at all. They were not idle for two years doing hardly anything. As we know, they still had lives to live. They didn't have all the conveniences and the technology we have today. They still had livestock. They still had homes to care for. They had roofs to fix. They had all types of things they were involved in, in food preparation and, and, and food storage. And, you know, they had the huge bumper crop there in, 48, in the year 48, so they had to be sure that was cared for and dealt with and it wasn't going to spoil. And All the things they had to do, they still had much they were doing with their families and, of course, with their, their regular worship, their feasts and their celebrations and all the things that they did. Even still, they were not idol. They had much to do. Weekly worship, annual celebrations, offerings. However, the time that they did spend on the harvesting, because that was a significant portion, they now had some discretionary time that could be used for spiritual encouragement, for worship and deepening maybe those aspects of their life of worship that had been maybe a little thin for the previous years. And God gave them an opportunity not so they would use it for themselves so they would actually grow deeper in their worship of him. That he would become not just a priority but even more of a worship of priority for them as his people. They now had the time that they spent on the crops could be used for spiritual growth and worship. It was like Sabbath worship on steroids, if you could think of it like that for God's people. It was like having a celebration that they've never had before that went on and on and on and continued throughout this year of Jubilee. Now remember, as God's people entered the land, it took about seven years to conquer the land. It took about seven years approximately or so to then assign and to allocate the various regions and divisions and lands. They didn't just text each other and say, okay, got it, we're gone. I mean, it took time for hundreds of thousands of Israelites to move and to have their settlements and so forth. And so it wasn't until about year 14 after Joshua led God's people into the land that they began this seven Sabbath times seven. And so it was about year 64-ish or so maybe that they would have ever even celebrated their first, after being in the land for over six decades, year of Jubilee celebration that we don't have a whole lot of record of, but that, that's the first time they would have done it. So more than one generation would have passed, you see, before they even got to the first year of Jubilee. Certainly they had had the Sabbath rest every seven, but not this particular year of jubilee one of the truths that we can glean here is that god's people 
had to learn, the Israelites had to learn to trust God during both the Sabbath year, but also this Jubilee. Because they were used to harvesting, sowing, and reaping, and getting into the soil, and being all about their hard work, producing their crops. And, you know, when you're in the mode of just doing and working and seeking to try to get ahead and to provide for your family and do all the things that they did, I'm sure that it was difficult just to refrain, to stop, and to not think, but what if I don't have enough? What if we're not going to be able to provide? What if my children are not going to have enough to eat six months into or two months? Or, or what if? What would happen? So they learned to trust God to provide for them. Similar to, and the reason I noted it was almost 65 years before, because it was 65 years before that that they were finishing up their 40 years of wandering remember? And for 40 years, they had to trust God. Literally, from heaven, the bread would fall and the quail. He would provide for them, literally, his hand to their mouths. Well, that was 60-something years ago. I'm sure many of them did not consider that to be as on the forefront of their mind. But now we're being called to trust you this way. You know, we have a tendency to do the same thing. Do we not? How often do we have a situation in front of us. Maybe you're living in something right now where God's calling you to trust him. And if you took a moment to truly stop and pause and look back, maybe six months, a year, maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe even longer and reflect, God did do this. And that was a monument to his promises being fulfilled to me. And if you did that for just one moment, then the present struggle might begin to weaken. At least its grip on your heart. And its power of trying to place fear in your heart. Because you know God's going to continue to be the same God he was as he was back then. God wanted to remind them again, just as he did in the wandering, you have to trust me. Not grumble and complain, but trust me, I'm going to provide for you. Worship me and I will be the one who is the great provider. Only gleaning whatever the land provided and not reaping and sowing, a harvest really forced God's people every seven years and then the Jubilee to truly look at the Lord to provide for them. It was an imposed reminder and opportunity for God's people to trust. You know, another spiritual truth <clears throat> was, and it's kind of right in the text, you might miss it in today's uh, passage, but a truth that God's people also was, were given by God was that in the midst of trusting God to provide for you and for your family, you're called to be generous. In the midst of you having to trust God for maybe how you view your resources as being thin or limited, you're called, we are called as God's people to be generous in the midst of trusting. That seems to not go together. I barely have enough for me, and God, you're asking or calling me to be generous to others. Yes, that's exactly what God says. He calls us to generosity because first we know the gospel is all about its generous portion to us through Christ. But it's because in the midst of us trusting God, we are called to be his people to this world. That doesn't just get put on the side, be put on the shelf, until finally I get what I need, I get what I want, and then I'll consider being, no. God calls us to be generous as we trust, in the midst of the ongoing pilgrimage. Look at <clears throat> verse six in 20, chapter 25. He says, <clears throat> the land's to have a year of rest, and then whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, who else? Manservant and maidservant, the hired worker, and then the phrase, and the temporary resident who live among you. You see, the, there were those 
who were temporary aliens living amongst the regions of the Israelites, wherever they were, throughout the entire region. <clears throat> and so, of course, if they harvested even regular crops, they were not to uh, regularly, in, in a given harvest year, they were to not glean all the way to the edges anyway because the reminder was regularly leave a little bit on the edges for those who are among you that may not have much for the poor for the for those that are homeless don't have a place for the for the traveling sojourner the temporary alien and resident leave that edges so they can glean and get something so they won't starve to death but now it's even been expanded more than just the edges of your fields the whole field is available to anyone who wants as they go through be generous as you take whatever the land gives. Also, allow for others with you to receive. Be merciful. Be generous, even as you're trusting me to provide, and I am providing for you. God reminded us. So what do we must consider? We must consider to exercise our muscle of faith. And trusting God to provide for us. As we exercise that muscle of faith, we commit all, all of ourselves to Jesus. Not just selective parts. You know, God, he has saved us for his purposes. He hasn't saved us for ourselves. He saves us. He brings us into relationship with him for him, for his glory. We're blessed by that. But that's not why he does it, so that we get what we want. He blesses us by bringing us into a relationship for eternity with him and rescues us from the darkness and judgment and his wrath for all eternity for his glory, for him to be lifted up. We're blessed in that. We receive more than we could ever imagine when he's glorified. But he doesn't rescue us from wrath and judgment just so that we can be safe and secure now we already have the knowledge that we are safe and secure for eternity what we must not mistaken is that now it's all about being safe and secure in this world and i'll do anything i can to maintain my security and safety and have the world that i need the way i need it because it's what i desire god's more concerned about his glory than he is us feeling safe in this world because he is our safety. He is our security. This year, we really must trust. We, all of us, must trust God in our life. We have to trust him. I mean, really trust him. We need to take a step forward of wherever you are in your journey of trusting God and trust him more. Maybe a lot more, but definitely a step further than where we have been. We have to step out and trust God will take care of us. And we take him at his word. We take him at his promises. And we don't simply excuse what we're not living by faith as, well, God's given me two hands to work and I need to do what I need to do. Yes, we're not to be idle, but the Israelites were not idle, and yet they've stepped out in faith and trusted God. It's both and. We do the work God's given us to with our hands, but our hearts are looking to him for the provision, not our own strength and abilities. Here's the question. In 2013, are you going to step towards Jesus and trust him this year? differently than you did last year? Are you going to step towards him this year? How many of us in the past four or five years since this recession hit have pulled back on our generosity? How many of us have, if we're honest, have pulled back? And I don't just mean even with money, but in many areas of our lives, our time, our resources, our investments, our energy, and even our money, we've pulled back on being really generous because we're afraid and unsure of our future. How many of us, if we're honest, probably all of us could say, yeah, I've had those temptations and actually I've done that. I need to take another accounting. I need to take another reckoning. I need to take another inventory of where my heart is on this issue. 
we have to evaluate our daily choices, how we spend our time, our energy, our investments, our resources, and make sure this coming year they're giving evidence of the faith that we profess that we have. They need to give evidence. Our daily lives must give evidence to a watching world. This world is watching us. Every day someone is watching your life and wondering where is Jesus. And if they're not consciously thinking it, it's certainly something there, observable. Where is our trust? Where are we truly giving our hearts to him? So the first practice was this refrain from the harvest, but the second practice was freedom and forgiveness given to the indentured servants and the debt that they owed. There was a, a forgiveness of debt. There was a freedom from the burden of the debt that had come upon God's people in the midst of their sojourn up to the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25, verses 39 through 43, you don't have it in your bulletin, but it should be on the screen. It says, again, if one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released, and he will go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. An Israelite that found himself in a debtor's relationship prior to the year of Jubilee, whereby he was an indentured servant of his creditor, would be released and forgiven in the year of Jubilee. It's an amazing thing. How many of you, oh, wish that January 1 was the year of Jubilee for your debts? Wouldn't that be an amazing? All your creditors would release you from your debts. Some of you have mortgages that are, you're upside down in your homes. You may have student loans that just seem they're insurmountable. It goes on and on. What if they were forgiven? How would you feel exactly? Can you imagine the freedom that came in this year of Jubilee? What was God's reason? Why would he do such a thing? Look at verse 42 again. It was on the screen, verse 42. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. What's God saying? You're mine. You're not going to be enslaved anymore. We dealt with that at Egypt. You see, you're, my, you're free. And once I freed you, you are free indeed. You're free forever. And no longer are you going to be imprisoned again. And so, you might be in a temporary state of, of giving yourselves, dealing with this debt, but know this, there will be a day that you will be completely free. And the year of Jubilee just reminds them that they are, for all eternity, going to receive the freedom that they've always wanted. Always will receive it. Their identity remained in Yahweh, not in their debt. Whether it be financial, moral, some of you here today are oppressed. You're not oppressed like maybe those in other countries or nations in our world today, but you're oppressed. You're oppressed by your own soul. You're oppressed because you know of your own moral debt. And it's there. Whether it's something that you did 10 years ago, 5 years ago, when you were a child, something you did that still hangs over your head. And it's a debt that you just can't seem to get out from under. No matter how great your moral debt is, God says, I can free you. I can free you from that debt because my son has paid for that debt. That sin, that wrongdoing, no matter how grave it may be, how great he has paid for it. He has provided for it. God redeems any moral failure, 
even when everyone else around you might not forgive you. God says, I will forgive you. I promise I have forgiven you in my son. Once you've been adopted as God's son or daughter into his family, another reminder is this. No mistake that you make, even as a Christian, no mistake, no bad choices that you've made, or even a rebellious action on your part can change your status of sonship, your status as God's son or daughter. It can't change it. It can never change it for all eternity. It's done for. And that's what God reminds his people, that they have freedom and forgiveness from the debt that they owe. Leviticus 25 through 29 and 31 says this, if a man sells his house in a walled city, he retains the right of redemption of a full year after its sale. During that time, he may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and his descendants. It is not to be returned in the Jubilee. But houses and villages without walls around them are to be considered open country. They can be redeemed, and they are to be returned in Jubilee. What's it saying? It's saying those cities, those homes that were in the walled cities, who really didn't have land and, and harvests that goes with them, they were just primarily residences. And so what God said that they could be redeemed the year of Jubilee, but not necessarily. Unlike all the other lands and, and crops and things that went with the homesteads, with Israelites, those are to be returned to the family or the heirs of origin in the year of Jubilee. Not every home or property within the walled city was returned, but the homes that were outside those walled cities, those homes were redeemed. Those properties were returned to the family of origin or to the heirs of those families. You see, the Sabbath rests the year of Jubilee was focused largely on the land having rest. And so if you didn't have any land with your home, it really didn't, didn't connect. But with having property and land and the harvest, that needed rest. That was part of the year of Jubilee focus. So those outside the walled cities that had lands and crops, they were returned. They were given back. Leviticus 25 25 to 28, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen had sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the years since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and he can then go back to his property. You see, that's hard for us. Why, why does, why did, that seems unfair. I've got a piece of property. I bought it fair and square. And now this guy, just because I'm in the 49th, 50th year now, he gets it back just because his name was on it 50 years ago. Why? You see, that's what I would be thinking. Are you not thinking that? I'm thinking that. Why are you thinking that? You're, I'll tell you why you're thinking that. You're thinking because I'm thinking that. Why am I thinking that? I'll tell you. We have a whole different mindset. See, here it is. We have a whole different mindset than they did about your house, your mortgage, your land. I got my acre of property. That's my homestead. That's how we think. No one's going to take my property right? That's how we feel. Their understanding of their homes, their land, their possessions, their animals, their, it wasn't, it's mine. It was, it's his. Very different mindset. They weren't owners of anything. They were stewards of everything. Very different. They didn't think the way we think. That's why this year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year, all these things, it was like, well, of course. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, yes, of course we'll do that. Yes, we, well, this is yours. It's not ours. I'm just caring for it. I'm just tending it right now. That's how they understood it. God owned the land. The Israelites were merely stewards of it. 
Leviticus 25, 23, and 24 says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, God says, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. You see, this understanding of holistic stewardship is throughout the Bible, though. It's not just in the year of Jubilee. It's throughout all the scriptures. The problem is we have lost it. We've forgotten that everything in our life is not ours. We should, though. Jesus reminded us of it. The New Testament writers reminded us of it. But we tend to not want to read those passages real closely and carefully. Everything is God's. All that we have is his. Psalm 24 says, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That includes me and you. That's what God is trying to share with us. The year of Jubilee points all believers to consider that all of our life is about stewardship. Our homes, our cars, our personal items, everything we are, our relationships, our families, our spouses, your children, your parents, our calendar, our finances, there's nothing that we should consider as ours. Nothing. That may not be what you wanted to hear the first Sunday I got back after vacation but it's what Scripture tells us. Nothing is ours. It's all His, even us. We are His possession, Scripture says. We are His possession. What a wonderful truth it is. How tightly are you tied to your earthly residence right now? How tightly are you tied to it? How important is that next home that you want to buy, that next car that you want How do you respond when your earthly place, your earthly possessions, or the people in your life are changed, moved, or taken away? How do you respond? What does your heart do? You'll know where your heart is by how you respond when it happens. Evaluate yourself. When it happens, do you just nod up inside? Just totally just become more and more stressed? Or do you go, well, that's not a problem. This is the Lord's. This isn't mine. It's all his. How's your heart responding? The final question we have to ask is, what is our jubilee then? Now that we know what theirs is about, what is ours? What is our jubilee? I'm sorry, I tricked you. Wrong question. It's not what is our jubilee, it's who is our jubilee? And now you know the answer by asking the question rightly. The answer, Jesus. Jesus is our jubilee. He taught in Luke 4, 17, as he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he was teaching this. It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, that is Jesus, unrolling it. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's so amazing about what Jesus just, re- just said? He's saying, the year of the Lord, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 19, that is the year of Jubilee he's referring to. As he speaks from the words of the prophet Isaiah, he says, I have fulfilled it. I am. The year of Jubilee was merely a foreshadowing to Jesus as a fulfillment of the Uber Sabbath. That's what Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of the Uber Sabbath, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. For an Old Testament believer, everything was done with a trajectory towards the Sabbath. Everything was done with that trajectory. Weekly Sabbath, Sabbath year every seven, and now every 50, the year of Jubilee. Everything was seen in light of God's holy Sabbath. Everything was understood in light of God's promised ultimate provision of rest. Everything in their life. They understood that. It was just part of their mindset. So we must have that same mindset. Everything we understand in our lives must now be seen in light of God's ultimate provision of rest in Jesus. That's it. Everything. So you rest in him when something goes wrong tomorrow morning at work. 
You rest in him when you get that phone call this week of someone that's got cancer. You rest in him whenever something happens. You rest in him when something's not happening. But we rest moment by moment with that in mind. What does it mean that Jesus is our ultimate rest? As I close, it means this. First of all, it doesn't mean that we just literally take life easy and become, frustra- and become frustrated and aggravated when life isn't smooth sailing because I'm supposed to have a rest here. No, it doesn't mean that. It does not mean that we work 40 years of our life so we can sit back and drink life's big glass of champagne, retire in Boca Vista, playing shuffleboard, eating dinner at 4.30, and golfing five days a week with preferred vacations, if you please. No? That's not what resting in Jesus means. Kennedy Smart is a father of the faith to many in our denomination. Many of you know him, some of you don't. He's probably in his 80s now. He's a retired pastor. I know him as a friend. He still, in his 80s, goes three or four days a week to a local public school and mentors third grade boys and tells them, I'm sure, with others hearing, all about Jesus. And over the years, he has led many third-grade boys to Jesus and their families and their parents because he just goes in and shares his life with young children. He's not sitting back and wasting his life. He's not just taking it easy because he's done his work in the kingdom. And let me tell you, Kennedy Smart has done work in the kingdom for many decades. And yet he understands Every breath I have is his, as long as I have breath. Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath means that we know with certainty that he has met every requirement of God's law on our behalf so that we have peace with God and will never have to experience his judgment or wrath. That's what it means. It means that we can daily live knowing that our eternal future is secure with him, and it means that we can face suffering, disappointment, and trials with assurance that Jesus has your and my mind, ultimate good in mind, always.